This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Danny said that Cutter didn't want to play here in Philadelphia and didn't want to play for the Flyers. What's your reaction to that? Then we don't want you. Uh, I believe you've met Cutter before. Were you surprised that he... I don't know Cutter from a hole in a wall, you know? Uh, so, and I'm not too interested in talking about him. I'd rather talk about Jamie. He's the guy that's coming here. Philadelphia Flyers, baby. John Tortorella, baby. Flyers culture, or is it salon culture in the NHL? More on that in a couple of moments. Welcome to the program. Let's uh, let's take a trip back into uh, hockey memory lane, shall we? Let's take a trip back to 1991. Eric Lindros, drafted first overall by the Quebec Nordiques, refused to play for said Nordiques, and later, one year later specifically, forced a trade, ended up with the Philadelphia Flyers. Flyers fans loved it. Flyers fans rejoiced. Fast forward to 2022. Cutter Gauthier, drafted in the first round, fifth overall by the Philadelphia Flyers, refused to play for the Philadelphia Flyers, forced the trade a year later, and ended up with the Anaheim Ducks. Philadelphia Flyers fans did not love it. Philadelphia Flyers fans did not rejoice. But if you're keeping score, kind of feels like they're even now, right? Anyhow, welcome to the program. Plenty on the cutter, Gauthier, Jamie Drysdale. Uh, trade coming up here in a couple of moments uh, from a lot of different angles. And if you thought I was kidding about this season becoming a soap opera, it's not becoming a soap opera. It is a soap opera. And last week's chapter in the ongoing soap opera that is the uh, 23-24 NHL season, remember how upset everybody was and how distracted everybody was and how fascinated everybody was with Cole Perfetti and Ryan Hartman? Does that not seem like it was about a million years ago now? Really, it was about, eh, the grand scheme of things, about five minutes ago. We've moved on. Well, until February the 20th, and we'll relive the entire saga once again when these two teams meet. But now the drama involves Cutter Goche, Danny Briere, John Tortorella, as you heard, Anaheim Ducks and the Philadelphia Flyers. And everybody's having a whack at this pinata. There are a lot of theories that are out there. There's a lot of... You know, certainly there's a lot of talking points around this, but there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories or this is what really happened. And when you have a peek behind the curtain, clearly this is what happened between the two sides here. Uh, Elliot Friedman is at the uh, Sharks and Leafs practice this morning. So he's going to join us in about an hour here. Um, And I I think Elliot Scott is good a handle as anybody and probably more so than a lot of other people have uh, on this situation. Uh, We'll let you know exactly sort of what the time and temp is and what the backstory is on uh, on this story and how we got to last night where we saw Cutter Goche traded uh, for Jamie Drysdale. Uh, So we're going to also, on today's program, uh, talk to Charlie O'Connor, who covers the Philadelphia Flyers. He will be aboard in hour two. As I mentioned, Elliot Friedman joins at the top of the hour, and Sean Reynolds, uh, who covers the Winnipeg Jets. 
for Sportsnet will be uh, will be aboard. Have we mentioned in the last couple of days that the Winnipeg Jets are the top team in the NHL? Discuss amongst yourselves. Although it seems as if it's a sort of revolving door of who is the top team in the NHL, uh, depending on the day. There's a couple of points separating five teams. This is a most impressive race for the President's Trophy. Normally there's one, maybe two teams that sort of pull away Clearly, last year was the Boston Bruins, uh, and they seem to be the ones that are hard charging for the president's uh, for the president's trophy as a top team in the NHL. This year, there's a handful of them, and again, depending on the day, uh, you have a new number one on the leaderboard. Uh, Matt Marchese is aboard here to to help us, you know, have a conversation about what we saw last night, uh, because the ripple effects of this one I think will be felt for a while. And I don't get the sense, Matt Marchese, that we are anywhere close to the end of this story. Normally a trade sort of ends a saga and ends a drama, like with Eric Lindros and the Quebec Nordiques, as I cited back in 1992 when he was eventually traded. That was like, okay, it's over now. Certainly there's going to be some hurt feelings on one side, some celebration on the other, but essentially a lot of the story was done. This one, I get the sense that we're only beginning to find out about what went on and what were the conversations and we're wondering why Cutter Gauthier uh, did not want to play for the Philadelphia Flyers, essentially forcing Daniel Briere's hand uh, to get him to move. The, the one thing that I think we can say with 100% certainty on all of this is Jamie Drysdale was shocked about this when he heard the news that he had been traded last night. Now, I do think that that side of the trade isn't getting enough concert or enough attention, but you can understand why. Everyone's focusing on the Cutter Goche drama. But I think the Philadelphia Flyers really did a nice bit of business here for themselves. Uh, but before we get into the Pacifics, as we say in the Atlantic, as my dear friend Bill Waters used to always say, how did you read the trade, or how did you see the, uh, the drama last night? So... Honestly, I got home last night. I, we had uh, first gymnastics class with the little one, and I get a text from our producer, David Sis, and he says, I guess we have to get someone on about this trade. I had just walked through yeah. the door, and I went, who got traded? And he told me, and I went, holy smokes, <laughs> that actually happened? Um, my first inclination yeah. when I heard about the deal and what the package was, I thought that the Philadelphia Flyers made out like bandits. Because to acquire a defenseman with that potential and and to get a second-round pick attached to it, I, I think Cutter Goche is going to be a really good NHL player. But you know the impact that you can have with a potential number one or number two defenseman, plus you get a pick along with that. I thought Philadelphia had a nice bit of business there. The whole story just yeah. kind of totally caught me off guard because like the, you know, he didn't want to talk to the flyers and he didn't want to be a flyer. And this just doesn't happen out of the blue. Something happened. Something was said. Maybe he doesn't like John Tortorella. Maybe he doesn't like Daniel Briere or Keith Jones. I don't know, but you're right. When you talk about this thing, not being over, it is not over. Um, it will not be over until Cutter Gauthier makes his, first appearance in Philadelphia as a member of the Anaheim Ducks because, as you know, Jeff, um, the people in Philadelphia <laughs> yeah. are not the most understanding or um, uh, delightful people to be around when their sports teams are playing. And if you have done them yeah. wrong or said bad things about their organization, these are the same people that booed Santa Claus. What do you think they're going to do to Carter Gauthier? Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, look, their 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 memories are long, and it's uh, it's a scorned fan base right now. Although I am with you, I think the Philadelphia Flyers did a really nice bit of business here. And listen, right away, you would assume that Jamie Drysdale is going to walk in and certainly help that power play. Again, he's a 21 year old defenseman who also so shoots let's right. Not expect Jamie Drysdale to walk in, who also shoots right, exactly. So you wonder what happens now. Um, you wonder what happens with Walker. You wonder what happens with Ristolainen. You wonder what happens with the right side of the Philadelphia Flyers um, back end. More on that in a couple of moments. Um, I, I do think that that Sean Walker, maybe the writing is on the wall here, not to say that he couldn't come back to Philadelphia, but this one would lead a lot of people to go, hmm, I wonder what the next domino to fall is. But you would think that right away um, he would walk in and certainly help that power play from the point because now they have someone uh, to distribute the puck from up high. I don't know that he's... I mean, the, the one knock on Drysdale, as sublime a skater as he is, and he's a really, really good skater. Uh, the, the one knock, I suppose, is that he doesn't have like an Evan Bouchard-style shot uh, from the point. So there's not necessarily much of a shooting threat up there, although, you know, a lot of shots now are just intended to create re- rebounds. Uh, so take uh, take any you know conversation about his shot on the power play with a grain of salt there. I think he helps to improve that power play, which is checks notes thirty second in the NHL, just over ten <laughs> percent. The Flyers have been ab- <laughs> abysmal on on the power play uh, so far this season. So you would assume that he's going to help that right away. Uh, I would hope that Jamie Drysdale, when he gets to to Philadelphia, and he was supposed to arrive this morning. Uh, when he gets to Philadelphia, the first time a microphone is in his face, uh, he says something along the lines of, I want to be a Philadelphia Flyer. Like, there's just some things that are so easy to ingratiate <laughs> yourself with fans or the coach. Like, you would think, like, the moment he walks off the plane, the first thing he does is try to find a microphone, and the first thing that has to come out of his mouth is, I want to be a Philadelphia Flyer. This is this is like a, uh, a hanging curveball yep. that you're just waiting on and Bam! You're sending it over the uh, the left field uh, left field wall. Um, I think it's a good bit of business by Philadelphia. Now, from the Anaheim point of view as well, with uh, with Cutter Goche, and again, we'll talk to Elliot an hour or two, Charlie O'Connor uh, as well. I mean, Anaheim is and was negotiating from a position of strength in a, in a, in a couple of different areas here. Um, you know, this is an Anaheim Ducks team that is loaded with defensemen for the future. Like already Pavel Minchikov has distinguished himself mm-hmm. uh, as a really good blue liner there in his in his rookie season. And a lot of people maintain, and I'm one of them, that Olin Zellweger may be, you know, of that entire bunch, which includes, you know, Tristan uh, Leno and Jackson Lacombe. Um, I think that Olin Zellweger may end up being the best of the bunch there. And he's still applying his trade in San Diego of the American Hockey League. Um, so they were negotiating from a position of, of some strength. Uh, also, another factor you need to consider, Anaheim will be selecting high, and there are a lot of really good defensemen in this year's NHL draft. So I would imagine, you know, after taking a uh, forward last year in Leo Carlson, I wonder in the first round if Anaheim goes with a defender. Uh, we'll see what happens in June in Vegas. Um, and also now they bring in a player like Cutter Goche, who, you know, you would look at, and, you know, now he's playing center at Boston College. Uh, played center with uh, the Americans, the gold medal winners at the uh, World Junior Hockey Championships. And you would say to yourself, okay, well, where's the spot in the middle for Cutter Goche? I mean, that is going to be Mason McTavish and Leo Carlson for the next 10 years. Uh, I would imagine that Cutter Goche would at least start on the wing as soon as next season, which does then 
lead you to wonder about the future of one Trevor Zegers. Mm-hmm. That is uh, another conversation for another day. But again, like Cutter Goche, uh, originally you looked at and you said, that guy looks like a Philadelphia flyer, big, strong, tough, can produce like all of that. He looks like a flyer. He also looks like a Pat Verbeek type player. And he also looks like an Anaheim Ducks uh, style player as well. So that that is that from the um, uh, from the Anaheim point of view. The the other point that I think is really salient here is, um, you know, one of the things that Daniel Briere mentioned in his uh, in his scrum yesterday was, and I found this really interesting because I don't think I've ever heard a general manager say this, and I don't think it's getting enough attention. And that is, he thanked other general managers for not leaking the fact that they were looking to move Cutter Goche. Now, it's uh, it's unique that he would publicly thank other GMs because we don't hear that, uh, which leads you to believe that there were uh, more than a couple of general managers who had been talked about with Cutter Goche. Now, there's a, there's a really fine line that has always walked here because I remember Kelly Rudy told me a conversation he had with his general manager in Los Angeles, the great, the Hall of Famer, uh, and one of the best goaltenders ever, man, did I love him in 76, Rogi Vashon. And he asked Rogi Vashon about, you know, how often do you, you know, talk about players? How often do you talk about me? How often do you talk about everybody else? And Rogi Vashon said, I talk about all you guys every day. I'm paraphrasing Kelly here. He said, I talk about everybody every day. That's my job. I need to know how everybody is valued around the NHL. And in Charlie O'Connor's piece today, he talks about a conversation that Briere would have had with Kent Hughes um, at the draft last year uh, where... Uh, was it an offer to trade Cutter Goche to the Montreal Canadiens in exchange for the fifth overall pick? Or was it a conversation to gauge that player's value uh, around the NHL? And is that what Daniel Briere has been doing the last little while? I mean, I don't know that we're ever going to know the answer to that unless Daniel Briere wants to share what that was. But it's, I mean, it happens quite often where if it's looking like you're going to have to trade a player, like, listen, you tell me that Craig Conroy hasn't gone through this with the Calgary Flames, just about everybody on the Calgary Flames. There are conversations that you have just to gauge how other teams value your players. I would imagine that goes on all the time. And right around the top of that list, as far as managers that are active and always on the phone, you know, that's one of the reputations that Brad Treliving of the Toronto Maple Leafs, previous Calgary Flames, and before that, the Arizona Coyotes as an assistant, has always carved out for himself. Like, he is on the phone all the time, having these conversations, engaging how other teams around the NHL value his players. So I think we're not done hearing about maybe other potential trades or at least conversations that the Philadelphia Flyers have had about Cutter Goche when it became obvious that they were going to have to trade him. But again, I want to just sort of remind everybody there is that fine line between gauging what the value is and actually making an offer. That's all. Uh, because I would imagine that Briere would have been engaged with a number of teams before finally pulling the trigger on the Anaheim Ducks deal last night. One other point to all of it, always curious about the timing of deals, as I'm sure you are as well. Mm-hmm. When you look at this trade, uh, I want to assume that it's deliberate because I don't believe that, you know, any management staff that has 
um, Daniel Briere or Keith Jones as part of it does anything frivolously, but I would imagine that this was done deliberately because Cutter Goche's stock at his highest after that World Juniors, where he was just a standout. Like, he was a standout after the World Championships and, and playing with men. It was like, whoa, this guy's this guy's looking legit. And then at the World Juniors, where it, it looked like he could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, Cutter Goche's stock was at an all-time high. The other thing, and I think this is where he thanked other general managers for it, if it leaks out, and if we're having conversations on this program, other programs, on digital media, on radio, podcasts, wherever, television, Hockey Night with Elliot, um, if that gets out that Cutter Goche is not going to sign with the Philadelphia Flyers, all of a sudden Daniel Briere's bargaining power goes way down, and he has a much harder time getting a return the likes of which he got yesterday, which is Jamie Drysdale and a second-round pick. Um, that was a lot of blather by me there, sort of explaining, like, just sort of emptying my brain uh, on the entire thing. Did any of that resonate with you, Matt? Anything you want to pull out of there? Well, the the Kelly Rudy thing with, with Rogi Vashon is an interesting one, and we can use it now, is part of part of why that is important too jeff is and maybe this is the mm-hmm. case when you talk about cutter goche and and the conversation that that daniel briere had with ken hughes whatever that conversation was you can't play your hand and tell everybody who is available all the time and who is not which is why it's important to have constant conversations because yeah. you're not showing your cards here because you talk about Cutter Goche's value never being higher. If the whole league knows that he's available, guess what? His value is not going to be that high anymore because other people are going to go, well, we know he's available and he doesn't want to be there. It's a distressed asset. The worst thing that you can have as a general manager is a distressed asset. Good or if they are a yeah. great player or a good player, you still will run into problems. And I think that's why you know it was important that... Daniel Breer also maybe got this done a little bit quicker than um, some would say. Now, having said that, I think this is the best deal that probably would have been on the table for Cutter Goche. I, I would assume you're probably of the same type of mindset. Hmm. Uh, w- one other thing that I want to add to all of this, too, is this is why I firmly believe, and bravo to people like Brian Burke and Doug McLean who have actually done so, I think general managers should write books mm-hmm. when their careers are over because we talk so much about doing, you know, for the good of the game, for the good of the game, for the good of the history of the game. Stories like this from the primary sources really, I think, need to be told um, because, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, to the all the points we've just been discussing here, there were numerous conversations and numerous potentials. And I think a lot of people are fascinated. I know I certainly am. I suspect a lot of people listening or watching are in the alternative universe of the NHL. What happens if, you know, what avenue does the NHL go on, you know, if blank happens or if blank doesn't happen or if the, uh, you know, the, the, the Patrick Watt trade ended up being to Chicago for Ed Belfour, which I believe was the first offer to come in for Chicago and they didn't go the route uh, of the Colorado Avalanche, how does history change, etc. And I really do think that it's a responsibility. Maybe I'll put responsibility in lowercase because I hate telling people what to do. But no, you know, no, you know, or to the game. No, uppercase, uh, uppercase, you, 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 Jeff. You know, do it. You have a responsibility to, uh, to to document a lot of this and, and document almost all of it. And then one day just sort of come clean with it so you can start to really piece together what the NHL has always been like because these conversations are fascinating. And outside of, you know, Ron McClain did a wonderful job once upon a time, you know, sourcing all the different offers. 
that, uh, that the Quebec Nordiques got for uh, for Eric Lindros. Um, Doug McLean and Scott Morrison in Doug's book uh, got all of it from Pierre Paget <laughs> and just <laughs> splashed it all out there. And some of the names are really eyebrow-raising. Uh, one thing that I do want to add here uh, for the Philadelphia Flyers end of things is, you know, Jamie Drysdale, because you always wonder, okay, does he know anyone in the room? Jamie Drysdale... Uh, will walk into the Philadelphia Flyers room knowing a couple of people I would imagine pretty well, having uh, not necessarily played with them, but, you know, worked out with them, trained with them. Uh, Owen Tippett would be one of those players and Morgan Frost as well, all in and around the same area and would have a lot of overlap. So it's not as if Drysdale is going into the Philadelphia Flyers room and saying, hi, I'm Jamie, nice to meet you. What's your name? Anyhow, a lot more on this one. I know we've already done 20 minutes on it, and we've got pretty much, you know, the majority or at least the lion's share uh, of Hour 2 coming up on the Cutter Goche jamie Drysdale deal, which really is a, a blockbuster here uh, in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And it, this may end up being the biggest trade of the season. We'll see what Calgary has up their sleeve. But as of right now, this is the Whopper. Uh, elsewhere around the NHL last night, as we are all talking about, and rightfully so, um, talking about the uh, the Anaheim Philadelphia situation, we had some really good hockey games last mm-hmm. night. Sure did. Uh, we had a lot of really good hockey games for a lot of reasons. Like that that Boston Colorado game was outstanding. You talked about it yesterday. It's four three shootouts. Uh, Brad Marchand with a couple of goals. That last goal, the three three goal on a gorgeous pass from Charlie Coyle, the tip beside the net. The way that he was out of the play, and then suddenly uh, Brad Marchand was in the play, and we're heading off to to overtime here. That was a tremendous game, and it had one of the rare occurrences in the history of the NHL, coincidental, too many men on the ice calls. For the eighth, only the eighth time in NHL history have we seen that, the last one, November the 30th, 2006, in a game involving the Avalanche again and the Edmonton Oilers. How much of that game did you watch last night? I watched a little bit of that game. I was flipping between that. I mean, I was going through all the games, and then the college football national championship was on, so I was, had to keep an eye on that as well. But, you know, sure. that, that, that too many men, the coincidental too many men penalty, here's the most shocking thing yeah. about it, that it's happened eight times. That's the part that is the most shocking to me because... Really? You got Yeah, because, Jeff, you got to touch the puck. What, did they touch the puck at the same time? You know what I mean? Like... It's very it, the fact that it happened that many times to me is just frightening because listen you could yeah. call too many men on the ice a lot and it does get missed the fact that these two teams did it at the same time I didn't see it happen in mm. the moment and then I went back and watched it and I saw uh Elliot tweeted it out and I was like wait a second hold on that really just happened and uh, that was the most shocking yeah. to me here's here's the one thing uh, by the way, Nathan McKinnon extended his home uh, playoff scoring up uh, home playoff his home scoring streak to 22 games. Yeah, uh, Wayne Gretzky has the record; it's 40, which is alarming. Uh, did that from the beginning of the season, but that's not surprising. That's the least surprising I, thing. Is I know the least surprising thing you've said all day. I know. I think he had 72 points in that stretch or something ridiculous like that. It was absolutely it's it's asinine. Insane. But anyway, um, yeah. Brad Marchand's having a really good season. And it kind of goes under the radar because, you know, it's like, well, Patrice Bergeron's not going to be around. So, well, Brad Marchand's offensive numbers, they may take a dip because, well, you don't have Patrice Bergeron. It's a credit to Brad Marchand at 35 years old. 
to have this type of offensive season when everybody probably would have said, yeah, it's understandable if he takes a step back offensively. Brad Marchand is one of those players that if you do not want him on your team, you do not like to win and you do not like hockey. Hate having Brad Marchand. Mm -hmm. I I know guys that played exactly like him growing up. You hated playing against them. But boy, oh boy, when they're on your team, they're difference makers and you can hate on Brad Marchand all you want. I love the guy. I, I think he's great. And I think he's great for the sport too. Yeah, he is. And I mean, he gave uh, a lot of credit to Sidney Crosby uh, last week and saying, you know, Connor Bedard's like, okay, you're not even close kid. Like, let's just pump the brakes here. Sidney <laughs> uh, Crosby is, is, is still the, uh, the King. I love when, when players comments on, on other players around the NHL that way. Um, but you know, that speaks, I think a lot to the culture of the Boston Bruins and that room. Um, and I'm like you, like you lose Bergeron and Krejci, you think, uh Oh, there's going to be trouble there in Boston. Uh, all of a sudden what's going to happen in the production of David Pasternak, what's going to happen in the production of Brad Marchand. Um, they're fine. Thank you very much. I think it'll be really curious to see what they do come trade deadline time as well. Uh, last year in a lot of ways going all in after that marvelous regular season that they had. Like, it looks as if the Boston Bruins haven't missed a beat. And Boston has always been built from the back end out. That is uh, a historical uh, reality that goes back to Eddie Shore um, and continued all the way through your Bobby Orr's and your Brad Parks and your Ray Borks. And I always throw Gord Kluzak in there. And only if only if he didn't have those injuries and up to Zidane Chara and now with Charlie McAvoy and Hampus Lindholm, etc. Um, and for those of you who, again, continue to believe, as I do, that you build your back end, and that wins you the Stanley Cup. Uh, see Vegas, see Colorado, uh, see Tampa, see the St. Louis Blues, etc. Uh, the Boston Bruins are further proof that that is how you succeed in the NHL. Vancouver yesterday, and we saw this on Rogers Monday Night Hockey, just playing with the New York Rangers. Like, the way that the Vancouver Canucks handled the Rangers, and I think that the, the, the 6-3 score was, was kind of generous to New York because the way that, you know, Elias Pettersson with four points and Hoaglander and JT Miller uh, and Brock Besser just, and Quinn Hughes just played with the Rangers last night and drew them into, like, drew them into really basic bad mistakes. Like, you look at that, that Pettersson goal where um, uh, K. Andre Miller is going for a slide and he goes around him and ends up tucking the puck uh, around Igor Shishterkin. I mean, you got Jacob Truba chasing a hit on Hoaglander, which leads to the odd man down low. Bonehead move. Like, bless Truba. Love him. You know, we, we know that he loves the big hits. Bad decision at that point. Ends up in the back of the net. Like, Vancouver just forced the Rangers last night into making a whole bunch of bad decisions, and it's on the road. It's at MSG. That was one of, like, one of the more impressive performances I think we've seen all season, and it comes on the heels of maybe the most complete game we've seen the Vancouver Canucks play going back to Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday. Like, Vancouver's had an awesome couple of games here where, like, I, I think everybody understands just how good they are. But I think the last two games and then last night at MSG was so impressive. That's Vancouver just saying, like, not only are we good, but we could be Stanley Cup good. And we just want to remind everybody of that. Yeah, they're getting goaltending. And that's that was a big problem that they had last year. And Demko had the injury. And, and yeah. it was kind of a revolving door behind him. Um, Elias Pettersson yeah. yesterday, like that goal, I, I, I know he got stopped on the initial shot. 
But my goodness, like the the ability to yeah. then go around Shesterkin and then tuck it in from basically like while well, his face was almost planted into the post is pretty impressive in itself. <laughs> um, yeah. But here. Here's my question to you, because I was actually going to ask you uh, about this, and then you you mentioned Saturday. Shoot. What's the more impressive win for you between those two games, the Devils and the Rangers? Because, boy, oh, boy, I could make the argument that the second one on the road trip is uh, maybe a little bit more difficult yeah, considering the team that they went up. Like, the Rangers have been the best team in, in the Metro all season. And they got Panarin yep. playing at an incredible level and Kreider and Zab- go down the list, right? I don't know. Like, yep. don't, b- having both of those wins. And then they get a test tonight because the Islanders are going to, I mean, it's the second half of a back-to-back as well. But boy, oh boy, which one for you was the more impressive one? Because they were both great. Last night? Yeah. I think I, I think that Vancouver may have, it's going to sound weird, Saturday was the most impressive game that I think I've seen, like the most complete game I've seen Vancouver play. Like, every single shift, it was like, okay, check another box for Vancouver. Okay, well, that's another shift win for the Vancouver Canucks. And it went on all game. But going to MSG against that team, you know how the whole thing's being hyped up. is East versus West. Vancouver's one of the top teams at times of the best team in the NHL, etc. The rematch you of 1994. Squad. <laughs> oh, here we go. It's uh, Trevor Linden versus Mark Messier. It's Richter versus McLean. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get all of that, too. Um, it was, I think last night's was the most impressive, uh, always on the road like that. And at MSG, I, I thought that was the most impressive win. Again, I'm splitting hairs here, but I think of course. Vancouver Canucks fans know where I'm going. Saturday was the most complete game, but last night was the most impressive game. And again, like you made the Rangers do dumb things. How many times have you watched a Rangers game and said to yourself, wow, team X is really forcing the Rangers into really bad, dumb decisions. Yeah, haven't haven't said that much at all, all season long until last night, and the Vancouver Canucks just set all the traps, and the Rangers stepped on all the rakes. Now, this isn't a knock on the Rangers in general. That's still an elite team. I don't think anyone's thinking like, okay, that's it. The Rangers have hit a wall and, and they're going to throw in the towel. Like that's still an elite team and one of the best in the, in the NHL and still has, you know, the potential to win the Stanley Cups themselves. I'm just saying that it was really impressive how the, how the Vancouver Canucks just left bear trap after bear trap after bear trap for the Rangers and they stepped into all of them. Bravo. Great game by the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Pittsburgh over Philly. Uh, that Malkin pass to Raquel for the one nothing goal was a thing of beauty. Uh, Dallas over Minnesota. The other Matt Murray with the, with the shutout, 23-save shutout there. Minnesota has now lost five of their last six last night, going 0 for 6 on the power play. Lots of grist for the mill. And we have 10 games tonight on the board as well. We should get to those. One of those games will feature the Winnipeg Jets. They are in action against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Technically, right now, the Winnipeg Jets are the number one team in the National Hockey League. But wait five minutes, and that may change. In the meantime, we talked to Sean Reynolds uh, from Sportsnet about the Winnipeg Jets, where they're at, and where they are heading. Also, Elliot Friedman kicks off Hour 2. That's coming up in about 30 minutes. And Charlie O'Connor, uh, who covers the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, again, we'll do more painting and coloring inside the lines here on the, uh, the Cutter Goche deal. I'll try to come up with an answer to what really happened here between Goche and the Philadelphia Flyers. Like, sends through the hour. Hourglass 
So is this NHL season. The Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and wherever you get your podcasts. Back in a moment. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Do not forget, Elliot Friedman joins top of hour two. More on the Cutter Goche, Jamie Drysdale, and a second. 2025. Trade yesterday between the Anaheim Ducks and the Philadelphia Flyers. And I got a couple of tweets about my open where I compared the Cutter Goche situation to the Eric Lindros situation from so many years ago. Way to capture the spirit of the thing, guys. Yes, I know the scenarios aren't exactly the same. Yes, I know that Cutter Goche initially said he was happy to be a Philadelphia Flyer. And then blank, insert conspiracy theory here, happened, whatever that may be. Maybe we'll get a sharpening of the pencil on that one when Elliot joins in hour two. Um, I, I know it was different, but I think you know what I was going for here. And if you're keeping score, the Flyers got Lindrost. <laughs> Just like the Nordiques got Lindrost once upon a time. So if you're keeping the ultimate score here on all of hockey, I've always wanted to do that, sort of the, the even-up trade in the history of an organization. The problem is I don't have um, time to do any of that. There's a lot of reasons always to wish, you know, you were younger and had more time and then look back years later and say, why did I squander all that time? What I should have been doing is things like I just mentioned now and the ultimate scorecard for trades for NHL organizations because yes that's how exciting my life is we are standing by for uh, Sean Reynolds from Sportsnet we will be talking about the Winnipeg Jets Uh, the Winnipeg Jets one of if not the best team in the NHL right now and if you gauge the best team in the NHL right now uh, by something we know as the standings uh, you'll have to say the Winnipeg Jets are the best squad and they're doing all of this without Kyle Connor, their top goal scorer. And hands up, how many of you thought that the Winnipeg Jets were sunk when Kyle Connor got injured? If you're listening on radio, what you're missing is me putting up my hand. Um, this is uh, this is a really impressive team. This is very much a Rick Bonus team. This is very much a team where the accent is on defense. And with all due respect to all those defensemen, it doesn't necessarily matter who's playing defense as long as you can execute the plan as laid out by Rick Bonus and at times during a large stretch, Scott O'Neill as well. Uh, being joined by Sean Reynolds from Sportsnet covering the Winnipeg Jets in action tonight against those pesky Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, Sean, first of all, thanks so much as always for stopping by and um, and and help help us explain this phenomenon and it really is a phenomenon called the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, whether it's you know tops in the NA. NHL, whether it's what is it, 29 consecutive games where they uh, they haven't allowed more than three goals, uh, which is remarkable. I know Connor Hellebuck has a lot to do with that, but so does the blue line as well. How do you explain what we're seeing from the Winnipeg Jets here, Sean? Well, uh, your your intro was refreshing uh, because, and, and I know you touched on it. Connor Hellebuck does have a lot to do with this, but what people think about when they think about the Winnipeg Jets and Connor Halibut, because they think about all these years that the Jets have essentially hung them out to dry 
and he's kept them going. And he, he won a Vesna yeah. Trophy basically doing that, being a guy who took a team that shouldn't have been in the playoffs and dragging them over the playoff line. Nothing to take away from Connor Hellebuck. He's adjusted his game to fit into this system that you're talking about, this Rick Bonus system, uh, which yeah. doesn't make him as busy. He doesn't have to be as much of a star. He's not as showcased. And he's done a good job of fitting in it and becoming part of that system. But you touched on it. That system is really the true star of this team. It, it, it would be a sin to not give not just the Winnipeg Jets defense, but their entire team the credit it deserves for being such an unbelievably mm-hmm. smothering team, such a hard team to play against. Uh, I, I thought their game, their last game, was a perfect example. And yes, it's against the Arizona Coyotes, and they're not, you know, having the best of times right now. Yeah. But the Jets go out in that game, and Connor Hellebuck has an off night. But basically, the Jets can't lose even with a bad goaltender. Once upon a time, the Jets couldn't win without stellar yeah. goaltending. Now they can't lose even if you throw an off night for their goaltender in there. The shots that they allow are, for, are from terrible angles. They're floated from distance. Goalies, a lot of goalies would look really good in this system. When you switch from Connor Hellebuck to Lauren Bossois, I don't see a drop-off. Um, so basically yeah. what you're seeing from this team is an in same commitment to Rick Bonus's system that it's almost to the degree that winning has become secondary and going out every single shift and doing the things you're supposed to do within that system is primary. One leads to the other, obviously, but this team is so bought in and so invested in Rick Bonus's system. It really is their superpower. Now, I know that uh, that winning is fun, but also playing, you know, hockey that's a little bit more wide open without as many, you know, rules attached to them is a lot of fun for players as well. Like, I, I can recall talking to a couple of Dallas Stars players um, when Rick Bonus was coaching, and it was a whole lot of, yeah, we're winning, but this isn't as much fun as I want to have on a game-in, game-out basis. I know, you know, attention to the details and dot the I's, cross the T's, blah, 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 blah. But has anyone privately mentioned anything about, yeah, we're winning and that's great, um, but this isn't the most exciting time that I've ever had playing hockey? I haven't heard anything like that. And you have to think of where this team came from. The Winnipeg Jets have been since 2018, a really good team that was capable. A lot of analysts, you know, at times picked them to win Stanley Cups. A lot of people, you know, expected them to do better. And there's been a long conversation for a lot of years. What's wrong with the Winnipeg Jets? What do they need to do? How do they get over the hump? To your point, exactly what you're talking about, Jeff, that fun style of wide-open hockey that you get to go out and you score these really nice globetrotter-style goals. The Jets have been phenomenal at that for years, and it got them absolutely nowhere. And so what's happening right now is because they've had that experience, maybe it was a different experience for those players that you were talking about in Dallas, the Winnipeg Jets know what it's Mm -hmm. like to play globetrotter hockey and lose, and now they're seeing what they are capable of when they play a defensive brand of hockey and win and win and win to the degree that they just look absolutely unstoppable in this moment. And it just, this team gets two goals and basically shut it down. You're not going to score three on them. It's what 29 straight games. They've allowed three or less. The vast majority as of late are two goals or less. Mm -hmm. So this team is invested in winning. It spent a lot of time 
losing and trying to figure out why. Now they've been shown what it takes to win, uh, and that's what they're invested in at this moment. Let, let's um, let me let me get theoretical on you here, because I, I I really do wonder about this a lot. Um, this is a Winnipeg Jets team that you know doesn't have a prime Dustin Bufflin, that doesn't have a prime Blake Wheeler, that doesn't have a Patrick Line back when he could you know snipe 35 uh, just by rolling out of bed. This isn't isn't a Winnipeg Jets team that has Brian Little, who I still think doesn't get uh, enough attention for what what kind of player he was. Um, Yet through all of it, is this the best version of the Winnipeg Jets that you've seen, even without all these outstanding players? So if you're looking at roster, the answer is no. 2018 is the superior roster, player-wise. If you had got that roster invested in and playing this style of game, I don't think that they were stoppable. And, and to me, that roster was almost unstoppable mm. in 2018, just being like that. But what I will say about this, this team is far more resilient and it's far less vulnerable to the swings of momentum. And what I mean by that is that 2018 team, if you see what happened to them, they were going they looked near unstoppable, and then all of a sudden Vegas went out, not just in, in the series, halted their momentum, yeah. but time and time again on the ice, what they did to shut that Jets team down is they just they, they had really good sticks. They'd interrupt passes, and when the Jets couldn't flow, they didn't know what to do. They were so used to just bowling over teams, and when you've got guys like Prime Blake Wheeler and, like you said, Dustin Buffalo and guys like that who just were forces in nature, they, they really relied on that momentum and that momentum was hard to stop. But if you stopped it, we see what we saw in 2018. This team is not susceptible to that. This team has, I I think that before last game, they'd allowed the the first goal in four straight games. Earlier on in the year, it was important to them to score first to be able to get their system in play. Now it doesn't matter. They just keep coming out. And this is why I said that before about it's almost like winning is secondary. They go out each shift and it's about making sure you got that back check in, making sure you supported that guy on the boards. It's basically that it's a paint-by-numbers thing, and these guys are so focused in on painting in number one, number three, and number five, and they're not looking at the big picture. And they're, it's almost like they're waking up at the end of the game and they're being like, oh, we want another one. But that's how you make it so that you're not susceptible to these swings and these mm-hmm. highs and lows is that they're so invested in the daily grind. And, and to your point, it's almost the opposite of them getting sick of the grind. It's like they are so digging into the grind that they just aren't susceptible to those kind of swings that that 2018 team was susceptible to. Talking about the number one team in the NHL, the Winnipeg Jets, in action tonight at home against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, Sean Reynolds is my guest who covers the Winnipeg Jets for Sportsnet. Um, so here becomes the question then. Who was, uh, was there one person or two people or a collection of people that Rick Bonus needed to get to? Because none of this happens. Again, we talk so much about the buy-in, the buy-in, you know, the understanding of what the coach wants to do. You know, a, a lot of that is, you know, the coach wants one thing to happen. If the players don't buy in, or if a couple of the key guys don't buy in, guess what? The whole thing's going to fall apart. Who did Rick Bonus need to buy into this? Um, I would say it's their leadership group. I would say uh, this is almost addition by subtraction. Like, I think it's a lot of different of a team leadership-wise without Pierre Dubois in the room and without Blake Wheeler in the room. And I think... Right. 
Blake Wheeler was this team's leader for a long time. And I think what you saw last year was they tried to kind of move on to a degree from that leadership by stripping him of the C. Uh, and what we saw yeah. last year is the team kind of bought in. They were trying to get more people carrying the load as leaders. They got that at the beginning of the year. And then when they hit a little bit of a snag in the season, I feel like the team really started turning its eyes towards Blake and being like, what do we do now? And I don't know necessarily that the leadership of Blake Wheeler was moving in the same direction as the coaching staff was moving. So with that move, now you've got guys like Adam Lowry, guys like Mark Shifley, guy who was really tied to Blake Wheeler for a long time, uh, and Josh Morrissey. And you've got kind of leadership group that is kind of all about sharing in the leadership. So this is why you're seeing this team... It doesn't matter that Kyle Connor, who was smacked out in the middle of a Rocket Richard Trophy race, falls out of this. They're still going to succeed because you're getting contributions up and down the lineup. So Gabe Velarde, that line won this team game. Some nights, no one's really going. The yeah. goaltending steps up and wins them games. But what we've seen lately is the fourth line and the third line, and a guy like Vladislav Nemesnikov, who started the year on the fourth line and has moved goal, these are the guys who are winning the games for the Jets. So basically, Jeff, the answer is, yeah, sure, you needed a leadership group buying in, but to, in order to get what you're getting from the Jets right now, you need complete and mm-hmm. total buy-in, and that includes the guys coming in because as, as guys have fallen out of the lineup, guys like Dominic Toninato have come in and made a difference in games. Gustafson, David Gustafson has mm-hmm. come in, and he's making difference in games. There, there is the feeling that there is no one on this roster that isn't capable of helping the Jets win a game from night to night. They play like that. The complete and total buy-in is what was needed to pull this off, and that's what the coaching staff here has. Let, let me rewind there a second to an Amy just mentioned, because I, I think it's really important for this conversation. The effects of Vlad Nemestikov, like we've talked a lot about Shafley contributions, uh, Morrissey, a really unheralded defense, you know, Dylan, DeMello, et cetera, Neil Pionk, uh, Connor Hallebuck, Nick Ehlers. Uh, at times we've talked about Cole Perfetti, uh, and not just with Ryan Hartman, other things that Cole Perfetti does other than agitating Ryan Hartman. Um, and listen, we've talked about a lot of players. Vlad Nemestikov doesn't get a lot of love. He should. What does he mean to this Winnipeg Jets team? Okay, I've, I feel like I've been trying to uh, lead the charge when it comes to uh, giving <laughs> Vlad Nemesnikov his due. So I'm glad you brought this up. Thanks for doing that. Adam Lowry is the captain of this team. They've tried to build them uh, th- this team yep. in his image. Hardworking, doing the right things, uh, sharing the load, all those kind of things. Vlad Nemesnikov is, this team is almost more built in his image than it is in Adam Lowry's. And the reason I would say that is Vladimir Meskov came here and basically he signed and started the year on the fourth line. There's not been one time since he's been with the Winnipeg Jets that he hasn't hit in the spot that they have put him in. If there's a guy who's deserved more ice time or worked his way up the lineup, it's Vlad Nemesnikov. But his lot in life is that he goes where the Winnipeg Jets need him. Now, a lot of players would get frustrated with that. A lot of players would get pissed off with that. A lot of players would become disruptive Mm -hmm. with that. Nemesnikov is the guy who just could come off of a a seven points in four-game stretch and then get pulled out of the lineup as a healthy scratch and he would say, whatever you need, and he would truly mean it. And that selflessness that he has 
is to me what this Winnipeg Jets team as a whole has has taken on. I mean, Mark Shifley, I think in years past, were he not the central figure of the Jets offense, would have been frustrated by it, and it would have bled through in his play and maybe in his comments in the media. Right now, you're not seeing any of that. There is no one who puts themselves above the team here, and I think that Vlad Nemesnikov, you know, and I haven't even talked about his play. We could go time again about what a like true pro this guy is sure. and how he handles the game. But uh, the, to me, the true magic of him on this team is Vlad Nemesnikov just wants to win, and he will never stand in the way of that and let his mm. personal success stand in the way of that. And I think the rest of the Winnipeg Jets have taken that on. He is a massive figure in that dressing room. Sean, very thorough as always. Enjoy the return of Jack Roslovic tonight uh, to Winnipeg. <laughs> it is the Jets facing off against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Thanks, pal. We'll catch up soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. The great Sean Reynolds uh, covering the Winnipeg Jets top team in the NHL uh, for Sportsnet. Time now for Line Change presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook bet local. Matty Marchese, we have 10 to choose from. What is tickling you underneath the chin? Uh, it's the back-to-back for the Vancouver Canucks, uh, taking on the Islanders um, at, uh, at in Elmont there. A puck line is Islanders minus one and a half. The total has gone over in the last six games between these two teams in New York and five straight overall. The over is hit in 14 of the last 19 Islanders games. The Canucks are 5-0 and against the puck line in their last five and... Vancouver is 6-1 and one in their last seven games against the Eastern Conference. It is the uh, the Vancouver Canucks against the New York Islanders. And, of course, when these two teams get together, you always think about Bo Horvat, who was, as someone mentioned to me the other day, one of the best in-season trades uh, for any team in quite some time around the NHL. Uh, we'll see what happens with Bo Horvat. Uh, sounds like Adam Pellick returns for the New York Islanders. That's good news for them. Elias Sorokin gets the start. Uh, Vancouver tied for second in the NHL. We've talked about what they did against the Rangers last night. That was remarkable how they you know, tore apart the New Jersey Devils in their most complete performance on Saturday. The stunning thing about Vancouver... They lead the NHL by a long shot in goal differential, plus 50. That is a staggering number. This one should be a good one. Vancouver facing off against the Islanders. That was Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book. Bet local. Hour two's on the horizon. Elliot Friedman kicks it off. Don't go anywhere. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Standing by for Charlie O'Connor, who covers the Philadelphia Flyers. We're supposed to be joining us here at this time, but he gets a hall pass. He's actually right now talking to Jamie Drysdale. Practice has concluded. And uh, Jamie Drysdale, Matt Marchese, who must just, whose head must still be spinning. I mean, I was told that Jamie Drysdale did not see this one coming. This was an absolute shock to Jamie Drysdale uh, when it first happened last night. 
um, his head just must be spinning and thinking like, wow, how did I arrive here? You know, yesterday I woke up in the morning and uh, here I was in Anaheim Duck and enjoying sunny California. And now I'm in hockey mad, well, sports mad Philadelphia. You know, people have made the argument the best sports city uh, in all of North America. Yes, I know a lot of Philly haters out there. I get all that, but there's no denying it's a great sports city. Uh, so we'll give uh, Charlie a hall pass here. If he, can, if he can join us when he has time, that would be fantastic. And uh, we'll get the Philadelphia Flyers side of both the uh, the Connor uh, Cutter Goche situation, his point of view, and also after after having talked to Jamie Drysdale, where his head uh, is that. Um, you thought more about this one from the from the Flyers' point of view with Jamie Drysdale, Maddie? Yeah, I, I think I think getting a, a big right-handed shot defenseman that skates the way that Jamie Drysdale Dale does is is a massive addition for them. But you know, it's funny like. When you're that young and you're a, a high pick like Jamie Drysdale was, I, I agree with you. Like, yeah. that's got to come as a massive shock because you get drafted by an organization and you're not asking for the trade. And it's not like he's played poorly. Like, he's battled injuries, but it's certainly not poor play that made him a tradable asset. It's actually because he's a really good player that made him a tradable asset in this case. And, and for him, it's gotta be a shock because you just, you know, he's 21 years old, 22 years old. You don't think that you're going to get traded this early into your career when frankly you haven't asked for one and a young guy on a rebuilding team. You know, I always talk so much about, you know, books that I want to read. I mean, listen, uh, you're watching on Sportsnet 360. There's I a lot of show in front of books. These things <laughs> have been my lives, right? Like I've English major at Guelph, right? I did a lot of reading and uh, a lot of writing. So, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, fascinated in, okay, what's going to make a great book? What's going to make a great book? I wonder, maybe someone's written this. If so, I haven't seen it. Um, I've certainly seen articles about it. Um, players talking about the first time they were traded. That sounds have like a Ken Reid book. that? anywhere it oh it dude this has ken reed written all, all over it, it. <laughs> right ken reed uh, i mean is he's he's got the great book about players that play the one game yep. uh in the nhl which is a tremendous read how about players and their first trade and their feelings uh around it uh it's yeah that's um that would be a great one. Yeah. Um, and again, like Drysdale walks into the Philadelphia Flyers dressing room and he knows a couple of the players as well. Like, I think this is going to work. I, I really do. Uh, I know that Cutter Goche for Philadelphia Flyers fans really felt like a flyer, big, strong, tough. Like all the stereotypes you have about what a Philadelphia Flyer is. You can say the same thing about the Boston Bruins. Like if Cutter Goche were drafted by the Boston Bruins, like, yeah, Goche looks and feels like a Bruin. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's a Boston Bruin kind of guy. Um, Philly has its own historical spice to it. Um, what did you make of, like, it should come as no surprise. Like, it was kind of obvious, like, that was going to be the reaction. What did you make of the John Tortorella reaction? <laughs> you know, I don't know, Cutter Goche from a hole in the wall. Just, like, instantly dismissive. Like, it was a very, like, all of this, like, the reaction to it, like, everything just sort of screams Philadelphia here. Like, John Tortorella has quickly become sort of everything representative of Philadelphia. So like no surprise that he's loved there now. Uh, Just your thoughts on the reaction uh, to this trade from the people in Philadelphia. If the trade was the most surprising thing that happened, then John Tortorella's reaction should be the least surprising thing that happened. Like they are on two different ends of the spectrum here. I, for people that don't love John Tortorella and what he brings to the game, I say shame on you because John Tortorella is an absolute gift to the game of hockey. There was there was a, a, a comment he made the other day. I can't remember who it was, it was about. Maybe it was about uh, 
Tyson Forster. And somebody said, oh, you know, he had a really good game. And then basically John Tortorella asked the reporter, were we watching the same game? Like, he's like, no, he didn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, that's such a John Tortorella thing. Now, is he like that with his players behind the scenes? I don't know. I don't know what John Tortorella is like. But for what he gives us as the media and as fans of the game, I think John Tortorella is great. His reaction to to all this stuff with Cutter Goche is exactly what I would have expected from him. Yes, and it's a protein shake for Philadelphia Flyers fans. And the yep. first time that Cutter Goche plays at the Wells Fargo is going to be special. You know, the first time that I ever really... Um, that I really got a, a sense of like there are no sacred cows for uh, for John Tortorella is back when he was coaching Tampa. And okay. I remember I was doing the Leafs Lunch show with Bill Waters and we had him on um, and I asked him about Nikolai Habibulin and he just went off <laughs> on how poorly Habibulin's been playing. And then there was kind of like a stunned silence between me and Bill, like I don't think we even really knew where to where to go after he just unloaded on his starting netminder, and Tortorella says something along the lines of like, "Look, he's part of the team. Like uh, I don't know, like you guys wouldn't mind if I blasted a defenseman or a forward. Like <laughs> why should it be hands off with with the goaltender yeah. here? Like just really matter of factly. Like in in a lot of ways, um, John Tortorella in a very corporately controlled mess or a corporately messaged world john tortorella is a breath of fresh air yeah and like and he really is like there are plenty of coaches that would give you the varsity answer and give you the yearbook answer and give you the very you know corporate very polite answer that's not going to cause any ripples uh john tortorella really doesn't care now i'm not saying that that's exactly how john tortorella feels but in his position as head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers and how many times have we heard about building the identity of the Philadelphia Flyers? That was very much a Philadelphia Flyers answer. Whether John Tortorella really feels that way about Cutter Goche, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. That's that's John Tortorella's feelings. It was a very Philadelphia response. Yeah, 100%. And I, I like that he's taken on the identity of, you know, Philly. Like, because I, because I think that's important in certain markets, like in, you know, in, in Philly or in Boston, like you should be taking on the persona of, you know, the people around you and your fan base, because that also helps you keep your job in some ways. I mean, performance obviously goes a long way yeah. for that, but I think, I think being loved by the fan base uh, coupled with having success gives you a longer shelf life in this bit in that business right um the other thing about john yeah. tortorella is too is we see the brash side of, of john tortorella a lot the soft side of john tortorella for me is also what makes him great like the love of like jeff you and i both love animals we love dogs and and all that and his yep. love of animals like that's oh, yeah. the side that people don't talk about and I think it's great. I think John Tortorella is awesome. And when he was hired by the Flyers, I remember having him on the show and he talked about, you know, how much he's learned over the course of his career and how he's had to adjust as a head coach. There's a reason why people continue to get jobs is because they continue to evolve. And you and I had said this, who would have thought that John Tortorella would have been a great fit for such a young Flyers roster? And guess what? He has been, and this team is yeah. playing way better than expectations. I love it. Completely true. And how many times have we heard a coach 
uh, an older coach, say, you know, I've, I've learned a lot. I've cha- Listen, we most recently saw this with Mike Babcock Oops. in Columbus. <laughs> I've changed. I'm, I'm different now. You know, the game has evolved and I've evolved along with it. And the next thing you know, we're just hearing stories about kicking players in the back on the bench. Like, oh, okay, here we go. Like, how much more? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we get it. You really haven't changed, but you're saying all the right things for that moment at that time. You know, the, the thing that I... Uh, <laughs> The thing that I always re- remember too about about John Tortorella and Philadelphia, because prior to getting the Philadelphia Flyers job, um, you know John Tortorella was pretty much choked out during a game uh, in Philadelphia. Brad May was was on the bench and told me the story. Uh, it was a Buffalo Sabres game in Philadelphia, and John Tortorella was an assistant coach for the Buffalo Sabres at that point. And, you know, one of the fans behind the Buffalo Sabres bench, you know, give it to him, bark, 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 and John would fire something back. And then I guess John, at the end of one of the periods, finally had enough. And as the players were all exiting, you know, got up on the glass to bark back at the fans, say something, who knows what, only John Tortorella and that fan knows. And as he whipped around to go bark at the guy, John Tortorella's tie went over the glass, who was hanging over the glass. Uh-oh. And the Flyers fan grabbed the tie, put his feet up against the glass, and started pulling. And John obviously struggled to try to get himself back off of it. And as Mayday tells me the story, like you started to see John go out. Like the color in his face, you know, starts to change. And you're like, holy smokes, like what's going on here? Jim Pizzatelli legendary, you know, the man who saved Clint Malarchuk's life, Jim Pizzatelli, a longtime trainer uh, with the Buffalo Sabres, was a, a, a Vietnam uh, medic to the, to the rescue for John Tortorella, grabbed a pair of scissors and cut the tie. And John, I would imagine, just sort of stumbled back into the, into the arms of the Buffalo Sabres players who were there. But that's the one story previous to him being the head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. Whenever Philadelphia and John Tortorella were always mentioned, I always think about that story. The, the the night a Philadelphia Flyers fan almost choked out John Tortorella with his own tie. The thought process for this for people. Like you <laughs> like I'm thinking about like I'm thinking about having an argument with somebody, okay? And I'm yelling and barking yeah. back and whatever, and we've all had arguments where we've yelled and whatnot. The thought of choking the life out of someone at a hockey arena, I know people get crazy. I know hockey parents get crazy. I know hockey fans get crazy. That is next level. He put his feet on the glass. Like, that was attempted murder, Jeff. That was attempted murder. (laughs) Okay. Let's take it down a notch here. Let's well, I mean, oh, it's a nice little goofy, nice little goofy hockey story. Now you're calling the cops, Maddie. Well, I, I mean, that's a. This was listen. That's, that's uh That was a tough one. I mean, <laughs> you laugh about it years later, Maddie. That's the whole point of the story. Anyway, I mean, I, like, I love Philadelphia Flyers fans. Like, I know that, you know, in Toronto, uh, Chris Falcone is not a name that a mm-hmm. lot of people like. Chris Falcone was a guy that fell into the penalty box with Ty Domi after getting a squirt from the water bottle from a legendary number 28. Um, and it, it will, like, you'll watch that highlight forever. Right, like the highlight of, of Philly Chris Falcone falling into the penalty box as the glass breaks as Falcone tries to get at him 
is one that we're going to see on highlight reels forever. So again, like this is when I was doing the old Leafs Lunch radio show with Waters. We ran a contest, and this is before a Maple Leafs Philadelphia Flyers playoff series and sent a busload of fans uh, to go watch uh, a couple of Philadelphia Flyers Toronto Maple Leafs playoff games. And I got to meet Chris. We had him on the radio show, wonderful guy, got to Philly. Could not have been a better guy. Like, I don't think I opened my wallet once the entire time. Took us all around Philadelphia, all the all the hot spots. Like, here's the Liberty Bell. Take you to the old Spectrum. Here's the Rocky Stairs. Like, all of it. Uh, took us out, dinners, like, everything. Like, could not have been a better guy. And, of course, the conversation revolves around, you know, what were you thinking? Yeah. Chris and he goes like look like I'm a huge Philadelphia Flyers fan like the the passion that Flyers fans have for this team like put it this way if you're a dyed-in-the-wool Philadelphia Flyers fan that doesn't surprise you Mm -mm. like that that was the reaction from Chris Falcone that you know getting a squirt from from Ty Dome you're gonna go right at him like people around the NHL would look at that highlight and say what's this guy thinking but a lot of Philadelphia Flyers fans looked at that one and said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would have done I, the same thing. That's, that's what you do <laughs> as a Philadelphia Flyers fan. So I, I got, you know, I've got great memories of, of hanging out with, uh, with Chris Falcone for, uh, for a couple of days. And, like, I really do have a, have a soft spot in my heart. And I always have ever since, like, I think the first Stanley Cup, the first Stanley Cup final that I have any sort of memory, you know, hazy, foggy, or otherwise about. I remember being a kid and being at my cousin's place in Livonia, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, and watching the Philadelphia Flyers and the Boston Bruins. Like to me, I always think back, what was my first memory of hockey? And I think it was that series, or at least one of those games. I would have been five years old, and I can still remember, and I, for one of the first things that I ever connected with, with hockey was seeing the Philadelphia Flyers, and seeing that logo, and seeing that team, and then later you go on, you learn more about, you know, Fred Shiro. And to this day, I still talk about Fred Shiro, the revolutionary coach that I think never got his due for being as brilliant as he was. And that brings us roundabout now to John Tortorella, who's also brilliant in his own ways. And to Maddie's point, a real breath of fresh air in the NHL. And now he has another Ferrari to drive on the back end and Jamie Drysdale, who we all expect to make his Philadelphia Flyers debut tomorrow against the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, that's it for the show today. I know there's a lot of Cutter Goche talk. Yesterday was Nylander Day. Today was Cutter Goche Day. We'll see what tomorrow brings as the soap opera that is this season continues right here on The Merrick Show. We'll talk to you in 22 hours.